Hello and welcome to another episode of Damn Interesting Week. We are so glad you've decided to join us. My name is Jennifer Lee Noonan. I'm Angela Epley. I'm Whisper Chen. And this was a Damn Interesting Week. So let's get started with our first link. First First link. link. From Salon, we're asking the question, are we looking for extraterrestrial intelligence all wrong? Mm. I mean, Mm. probably. (laughs) We haven't found any, so I assume we must be. (laughs) It hasn't worked yet with what we're doing. So a shift is happening in astronomy in which scientists are looking more seriously for alien technology signals. Mm. Astronomers and astrophysicists have generally searched for extraterrestrial life by looking for biosignatures, right? We're looking at water, evidence of oxygen, or chlorophyll on other planets. But signals from technologically advanced civilizations could be a lot easier to detect, and it can produce signs that are unambiguously technological. Like if you see a giant, you know, spotlight out in the universe, like that that ain't natural, right? Right. You're getting reruns of a sitcom. There's no way that happened from <laughs> I have definitely seen that Futurama episode. Right. It is delightful. But specifically the paper calls into question the role of something called the Drake equation, which is used by astronomers to calculate the odds of finding intelligent life in the Milky Way. And this equation was first proposed by, you guessed it, astronomer Frank Drake in 1961. And because a lot of variables in the equation remain unknown, estimates have widely varied over the years, but it's mostly been used to justify the search for biosignatures when looking for alien life. And while the Drake equation suggests that technosignatures are rare, that may not be entirely true now that scientists are aware of more facts about the universe. Well, and the other thing is that the technological signatures travel much farther, which means that we're searching over a much broader range of time. You know, we may find a technological signature that's actually from millions of years ago that's from Uh a very, very far distance away, which ultimately may mean that civilization is now extinct. But at least we've Uh found something where the biological signature is long gone, but we've got that echo from the past. Could you imagine the archaeology documentaries on something (laughs) like that? Oh, so amazing. As if there's not enough streaming content available. Now we're going to have an entire (laughs) civilization's... (laughs) You know, SETI tube does have a bit of a ring to it. That's right. That's right. (laughs) Next link. Next Next link. link. This article comes to us from sciencealert.com, and it's titled, Mind-Altering Parasite May Make Infected People... More attractive, study suggests. <gasps> hmm, what? i here. <laughs> <laughs> it doesn't make other... What? Okay, hold on. <laughs> you heard it right. Yep. <laughs> okay. All right. So the brain hijacking parasite Toxoplasma gondii seems to be almost everywhere. The microscopic invader is thought to infect up to 50% of people, and a range of studies suggest it may alter human behavior in addition to that of other animals. The parasite has been linked with a large range of neurological disorders, including schizophrenia and psychotic episodes, and scientists keep uncovering more mysterious effects that may result from infection. In one such study, researchers found that men and women infected by the parasite ended up being rated as more attractive and healthier looking than non-infected individuals. 
Wait, wow. this is the parasite that we get from house cats, right? I believe so. Yeah, yeah. toxoplasmosis. And toxoplasma okay. gondii okay. is the actual parasite. And among other things, it makes you prettier, apparently. Yes. You know, wow. you cat hot. ladies are due for a rebrand. I am sick of the crazy <laughs> cat lady meme, and it's going to be hot cat lady from now on. Oh, yeah. Okay, but go yeah. on. <laughs> um, so on the face of it, that may sound strange and unlikely, but hypothetically speaking, the phenomenon could make sense from an evolutionary biology standpoint, according to scientists. There's actually some interesting images here that show composite images of 10 toxoplasma-infected people, besides composite images of 10 non-infected people. And, uh, you know, sure, the people on the left look uh, more average and thus more hot. That's how that works, I guess. Um, (laughs) Symmetry and all that, yeah. Yeah, yeah, you know, the more boring you look, the more everybody wants to... Whatever. (laughs) Anyway, um, (laughs) I'm not bitter. Uh, It's fine. I have some average features myself. Okay. Amidst the many (laughs) neurobiological changes, T. Gandhi infection appears to bring about in its hosts. Researchers hypothesize some of the effects may occasionally benefit infected animals, which might then benefit the parasite too, by subsequently helping to spur its own transmission prospects. Researchers explain in a new paper led by first author and biologist Javier Baraz Leon from the University of Turku in Finland, In one study, toxoplasma-infected male rats were perceived as more sexually attractive and were preferred as sexual partners by non-infected females. The evidence is far from clear, but some evidence suggests infected men have higher levels of testosterone than non-infected men. Arguably, Mm. men with higher levels of testosterone could be more likely to become infected by the parasite in the first place through greater levels of risk-taking behavior associated with the hormone, like (laughs) adopting cats. So, (laughs) sorry, that's my ad. Uh, I don't don't know that I necessarily agree with, I have higher levels of testosterone, so I'm going to adopt a bunch of stray cats. (laughs) I know, that was my joke. That's mine. (laughs) But, you know, for science, it might be worth investigating. Yeah. Sure. How hot you could be. You've got how many cats at home? (laughs) (laughs) So an alternative view, however, is that the parasite might be capable of subtly altering its host phenotype, manipulating chemicals in the animal's body, such as neurotransmitters and hormones for its own subsequent ends. To test this hypothesis, the researchers compared 35 people, 22 men and 13 women, infected with T. gondii against 178 people who did not carry the parasite, 86 men and 92 women. All the participants, including the infected, were nonetheless healthy college students who had previously had their blood tested for another study investigating T. gondii. Following a number of different tests involving surveys, physical measurements, and visual assessments, which I guess is just the scientists looking at them and be like, yeah, they seem hotter. Um, right, right, right. <laughs> which <laughs> the researchers found toxoplasma-infected subjects had significant lower facial fluctuating asymmetry than the non-infected people. In addition, women carrying the parasite were found to have lower body mass and lower BMI than non-infected women, and they reported both higher self-perceived attractiveness and a higher number of sexual partners, which maybe says more to say about our body standards than anything else. But um, (laughs) in a separate experiment, a group of 205 independent volunteers rated photographs of the participants' faces, and the raters found the infected participants looked both significantly more attractive and healthier than the non-infected participants. And Yeah, it's crazy. So that said, all of this is speculation at this point, and the team acknowledges other interpretations are viable as well, including the idea that highly symmetrical, attractive people might somehow better afford the physiological costs related to parasitism, which in other regards are considered a burden to health. 
But maybe, just maybe, they say this perplexing parasite isn't necessarily our enemy after all. The researchers write, it is possible that the apparently non-pathological and potentially beneficial interactions between T. gondii and some of its intermediate hosts are the result of co-evolutionary strategies that benefit, or at least do not harm, the fitness of both the parasite and the host. You know, leaving that door wide open for plastic surgeons to start advertising kit-kit nips. Where yeah. they basic, yeah, yeah. I mean, we're already doing Botox, right? Why not Toxoplasmosis gondii so that you can get that feline glow? I mean, mm. this is, yeah, the latest TikTok craze is going to be like changing your friend's cat's litter box. Because, like, that's how you catch this. It's why pregnant women aren't supposed to change the cat's litter box because you might get it and it might harm your baby. Mm. And that's Uh the one reason you're not supposed to get toxoplasmosis is it's not good for babies. I mean, it really is kind of bizarre. Like, if it weren't for the schizophrenia and psychotic episodes that are also associated with it, (laughs) I'd be like, yeah, pump me up. You know, I could use a chiseled jawline. But even that, like, there's something with, at least with women, like, crazy women are attractive, right? Like, there's there's (laughs) something to that. Like, a A lot of men, I'm just saying, a lot of men have expressed that crazy women are hot. And now I understand that that silly, hot, crazy graph with the sweet zone actually just has Toxo all over it. That's what it actually (laughs) Exactly. It's not manic pixie dream girl. It's deeply infected. That's right. (laughs) Situation. (laughs) Next link. Next link. So this next article is from Noddle.us, and it's called You Eat a Credit Card's Worth of Plastic Every Week. Every week? Yeah. And it's really just a grim collection of stats all around with data from a number of different researchers in a bunch of different fields. But I did want to point out that one of the main researchers quoted in this article is named Scott Coffin. So, (laughs) you know, a little on the nose there. Wow. But while microplastics research has increased exponentially in recent years, Coffin is not new to the game. He actually was part of the very first research team to realize that microplastics might be a problem for humans back in the late 90s. At the time, they were studying what was known back then as flock workers lung, which was a condition developed by employees of a Rhode Island textile factory that processed nylon flock. So flock is the kind of fabric where the fibers stand up perpendicular to the fabric to produce a velvet-like texture. Mm. And all those little pieces are cut from these long spools of synthetic monofilament. Lots of them get into the air. This Uh. particular factory had no ventilation. What? Yeah. (laughs) This was the 90s. And doctors in the area had reported that factory workers were getting lung cancer at rates three times higher than the rest of the local population. Ugh. So Coffin's team was brought in. Initially, they suspected some sort of chemical inhalation. But when they studied the lungs of some of the workers who had died, they found instead tiny nylon fibers that had lodged (gasps) in the lung tissue. And Coffin says this was really significant because it wasn't a toxin that had leached into the bloodstream. It really was just a physical piece of plastic Mm -hmm. lodged where it shouldn't be that had ultimately caused these people to develop cancer. Like internal splinters everywhere. Yeah, exactly. Unfortunately, he says, everybody looked at his research paper and said, well, clearly that's just a problem with nylon flocking instead of (laughs) microplastics in general. So it basically got ignored for 15 years until marine biologists more recently have started reporting problems with fish that have been consuming other forms of microplastic. 
And a lot of the research and discussion about microplastics, including the headline of this very article, continues to be about ingestion. But Coffin says the inhalation factor really is the bigger issue than people realize. So in 2022, a study led by the City University of Hong Kong found that when you put a standard fleece jacket in the clothes dryer, and by the way, all your fleece clothes are really made of plastic, but after just 15 minutes tumbling in the dryer, one fleece jacket will release up to 562,000 <gasps> microfibers. Wow. And most of that goes in the lint trap, of course. But Coffin points out that when we clean that lint trap, a bunch of it goes oh. airborne, right? You get that little cloud of dust. And it's likely that that little cloud of dust in our laundry rooms that we are breathing in is many times higher than the EPA's occupational exposure limits. And again, it's like, you know, half a second. It's not like we're working in this thing eight hours a day. But if that isn't enough, recent studies have also shown that some, not all, but some of the cheaper mass-produced disposable mask brands that people wore for COVID-19 no. protection... No! Yeah. While they did indeed block COVID-19 from the outside, they also broke down to a certain degree on the inside and caused wearers to breathe in microplastics the whole time they were wearing them. <laughs> Another study that came out in the Netherlands this year found that 80% of the lung cancer patients they were treating had plastic fibers in their lungs. And crucially, these were not people who worked in factories. They were just regular people going about their lives. Oh, gosh. And all that's just the breathing. We haven't even gotten to the eating. No, <laughs> I thought we were done with ingestion. No, no. <laughs> so studies are still sort of kind of spotty and hyper-focused. Researchers tend to, like, pick one food. But everything they've done so far is pretty on trend. One study found that shellfish from various fishing sites around the world all contained about 70 plastic particles per 100 grams of seafood, which is like one serving. Another wow. found that beer contained an average of 28 particles per serving. They found similar results for honey, even salt. Overall, oh. researchers have confirmed the presence of microplastics in about 40% of the human diet so far. And <laughs> when they extrapolate what they've found, they estimate that we are indeed eating about a credit card's worth of plastic every week, each one of us. Oh, boy. Now, is most of that plastic being pooped right back out again? Yes, it is. That's one of the reasons why Scott Coffin says breathing it is actually way more dangerous than eating it, because it's much easier for something to get lodged in the lungs than it is in the digestive tract. Right now, our best estimate is that around 0.3% of ingested microplastics are actually absorbed into our bloodstream, but that number definitely is not zero, because microplastics have even been found in the placentas of unborn babies. Oh. It's also true that some plastics are definitely more dangerous than others. One chemical called bisphenol A has been all but eliminated from most consumer plastics after it was discovered to be a powerful endocrine disruptor. But just like with the lung cancer patients, even when the plastic itself isn't toxic, just its presence causes an inflammatory response, which leads to oxidative stress and can ultimately interfere with energy production and mitochondrial function. Another risk is that plastics can bind with certain toxins and even pathogens. And when the plastics are absorbed, those substances are sometimes able to hitch a ride into our bloodstream where they couldn't be able to otherwise. Ugh. So, you know, overall, things are pretty dire. I mean, <laughs> the good news <laughs> is that scientists really have seemed to figure out just in the last couple of years that this is a super serious issue. And research mm -hmm. in this arena has just exploded. Coffin himself now works for the state of California developing microplastic regulations. And he seems to think that this stuff is really going to be locked down pretty hard in the next couple of years, maybe probably decades. It takes a little while. Mm -hmm. But 
you know, maybe there's hope. We'll rein in this thing before we all die. I mean, it seems pretty unlikely to me that someone's going to step up and say, hey, we got to stop using plastic, you know? I mean, whoever can come up with plastic 2.0 that, oh, yeah, I want my Star Trek future already. And I mean, it's very first world problems. Like for hundreds yeah. and hundreds of years, we had cloth <laughs> bags. We yep. like it, there are solutions. We're Banana just leaves. like mm-hmm. we're we're just being really stubborn about not wanting to go back to the actual solution, which is no. to have cloth bags and use them yeah. and stop being such babies about it. But well, we've also got all these industries that are built up around plastics, and that's right. usually the reason things take so long to shift and change. Yeah, but you know, if everybody we know has got lung cancer. Possibly things will change a little faster. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, I can guarantee you things will change if everybody gets lung cancer right quick. (laughs) Yeah. Next link. Next Next link. link. All right. We're going to stay in the digestive tract for this one. SciTech Daily has some interesting news about how fecal transplants can reverse hallmarks of aging in the gut, eyes, and brain. Mm. Power of poop. (laughs) So, yeah, we are in a quest for eternal youth. It is sort of a human condition, right? And it seems like poo transplants might be unlikely for assisting in that department, but... Scientists at the Quadrum Institute and the University of East Anglia have provided evidence from research in mice that transplanting fecal microbiota from young into old mice can reverse the hallmarks of aging in the gut, eyes, and brain. And they even did a reverse experiment, cruelly enough, where microbes from aged mice induced inflammation in the brain of young recipients and depleted a key (gasps) protein required for normal vision. Oh, it's like in Raiders of the Lost Ark where the guy gets super (laughs) old really fast. (laughs) Pretty much, yeah. But it's kind of showing a link between the sort of disease activity as aging. And Mm -hmm. it's showing that the gut microbes in particular play a role in regulating some of the detrimental effects of aging. And it even opens up the possibility of gut microbe-based therapies to combat the decline in later life. Mm -hmm. So it's been known for some time that the population of microbes that we carry around in our gut, it's linked to health, right? A lot of diseases Mm -hmm. are associated with changes in the types of behavior of bacteria, viruses, fungi, and all other kinds of things in our gut. So to understand these effects of these changes in the microbiota in old age, they transferred the gut microbes from old mice into healthy young mice and vice versa and looked at how this affected inflammatory hallmarks of aging in the gut, brain, and eye, which all suffer from declining function in later life. Age-related chronic inflammation even has a name. It's called inflammaging, and that's mm-hmm. been associated with the activation of specific immune cells found in the brain. And these cells were also overactivated in young mice who got those old microbiome transplants. So we've got similar pathways in our own human situation. And the human gut microbiota also changes significantly in later life. But because this was a mice test, you know, the researchers are adding that caution. Don't extrapolate results directly to humans until Mm -hmm. we can do Mm -hmm. similar studies in elderly populations. But a new facility for microbiota replacement therapy, known as MRT, it's currently being built into the Quadrum Institute, as well as trials for other microbiota-related conditions. So pretty important, pretty exciting, and uh, hopefully it doesn't get to that harvesting matrix level, but poop instead of energy. Mm-hmm. I mean, it probably will. I mean, it's better than a few years back when they were talking about harvesting blood from young people <laughs> and infusing it. <laughs> 
to make billionaires younger. I mean, if you're going to harvest something, poop seems easier, you know? You know, it's a very renewable resource as long as you are feeding the babies. Right, right. At least you have to keep them alive for that. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. It's all connected. (laughs) Next link. Next link. This article comes to us from Insider.com. It's titled Chinese Cave Explorers Discovered a 630 foot deep sinkhole containing a massive ancient forest. Ooh. The sinkhole measured over a thousand feet in length and was nearly 630 feet deep. The explorers repelled more than 328 feet into the sinkhole before trekking for several hours to reach the bottom. On the sinkhole floor, they found a primeval forest with ancient trees 130 feet tall. Expedition team leader Chen Lishin added that the plants grew densely together and came up to his shoulders. A Twitter video dated May 7th showed expedition team members climbing through the dense foliage and operating a drone just to document the sinkhole. And there's some photos and the video in this article, and I really recommend just, like, taking a glance because I kind of feel like I'm looking at a shot from, like, the land before time if it were live <laughs> action and they, like, found a place, you know? Like, it's just Well, this- I mean, yeah. it has to be, right? Like, that's got to be some kind of prehistoric climate site. Yeah, literally. Uh- and, you know, you're just seeing so much green and all of these massive trees just looking straight up this, like, circular, you know, it's just a giant sinkhole, but it's got moss and grass all over the bottom and huge trees. It's pretty cool. I mean, it does get sun though, right? Yeah, it's open to the sun, so it comes straight down. Okay. Wow. Yeah, so it's beautiful. That sounds like a dragon nest. Yeah. from (laughs) How to Train Your Dragon. (laughs) I mean, there is an image of the outside of it, of just the opening in the rolling hills. It's just this like massive black hole in the middle of the hillside. Wow. Wow. Yeah, and these are known as Tian Keng in Mandarin or Heavenly Pits. And they're common in South China because of the nature of the landscape. So George Venny, the executive director of the National Cave and Karst Research Institute in New Mexico, says, Because of local differences in geology, climate, and other factors, the way Karst appears at the surface can be dramatically different. So in China, you have this incredibly visually spectacular Karst with enormous sinkholes and giant cave entrances and so forth. In other parts of the world, you walk out on the Karst and you really don't notice anything. Sinkholes might be quite subdued, only a meter or two in diameter. Cave entrances might be very small, so you have to squeeze your way into them. And China is also home to the world's largest sinkhole, the Xiaozhai Tiankeng, measuring over 2,000 feet in depth. And that can be found in the Tiankeng Difeng National Park in Chongqing City. So yeah, really big hole. I want to go to there. Yeah. That's amazing. Well, and think about how long ago that sinkhole had to fall in order for this whole forest to then regrow inside the sinkhole. Yeah. I don't know. I'd be afraid to walk on it if these sinkholes are just occasionally opening <laughs> up and dropping 630 feet down. That's yeah. I mean, it's essentially a microclimate, like a micro ecosystem mm-hmm. that has to be so different than its surrounding area. So I'd be so curious to know what kind of life has developed there. Well, yeah, if an animal falls down in it, it's not going to get back out. So now you've got its own evolution happening down there that's fully separate from whatever's happening up above. Well, as long as you get two of those animals, right? Right, 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 right. Otherwise, you're just dead. <laughs> A little mini Noah's Ark, but down in the bottom. <laughs> I guess birds could get in and out. You might have some like flying creatures that could okay, visit. Okay, yeah. yeah I'm dragons, maybe. Dragon? Or dragon. Of course, the dragon. Obviously, it's going, coming and going. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Next link. Next, Next link. link. 
This next one is kind of an interesting philosophical examination from expmag.com called Why Are We Seeing All These UFOs? Hmm. So sort of a counterpoint to Angie's opening article. If you sort of break it down into the matrix of possibilities, right, either aliens are real, in which mm-hmm. case the increase in sightings is either because we're being visited more now or because we have better technology that's letting us detect them more now, mm-hmm. or... On the other hand, aliens are not real, in which case there must be some sociological factor that causes humanity to get UFO fever, so to speak, at certain times in history. Hmm. Because the truth is that while we have documented UFO sightings going all the way back to 74 BC in the Roman province of Galatia, their popularity definitely comes and goes in waves. And David Halperin, a professor of religious studies at the University of North Carolina, believes that UFO sightings are actually a kind of collective psychological experience that can tell us a lot about where we are as a culture. And he's certainly not the first person to make this argument. In 1959, the philosopher Carl Jung actually published a book called Flying Saucers, A Modern Myth of Things Seen in the Sky in which he argued that interest in UFOs tends to peak when humans are most worried about our future. In Jung's time, the concern was the Cold War and potential nuclear annihilation, and Halperin believes that our current spike in UFO activity and fascination is due to our anxiety around ecological collapse. Or the same thing it was the first time. What was it? Nuclear? Yeah, potential nuclear annihilation. Yeah, that's still very much on the table. Yeah. He says, quote, it's our culture's way of obliquely dealing with the unknowable, death, God, the afterlife, this fear that all of our lives are eventually going to be invaded by something alien that we have no control over. Hmm. One of the ironic things he notes is that while he's been a ufologist since the (laughs) 60s, it's during these periods of high UFO belief that people tend to take his research more seriously, even though what he's been saying all along is that it's not the UFOs that matter, it's the people. In previous decades, his research has often been pushed aside or his colleagues try to sanitize it by removing direct references to UFOs. He says the agenda is to set aside all the cultural baggage that it's accumulated. But for me, the cultural baggage is the core phenomenon. Hmm. He also doesn't like the latest attempt to change the name UFO to UAP or Unidentified Aerial Phenomenon. He notes that actually happened back in the 60s, too, the last time this country had UFO mania. Hmm. UFO was meant to be a scientific-sounding replacement for the term flying saucer. Nonetheless, Halperin is happy to ride the popularity train while he can, and he recently published a book called Intimate Alien, The Hidden Story of the UFO, which examines the long history of UFO sightings through the lens of social science. And, you know, maybe he's right, but I would also like to point out that if there's a correlation between cultural anxiety and alien sightings, maybe it's because every time we're about to screw things up, the aliens (laughs) do start showing up more often just want to keep a close eye on us and nudge us back Mm -hmm. in the right direction. Mm -hmm. I'm just saying it's possible. I mean, that's my take. Like, sure, we're anxious about it, but they're probably anxious about it, too. (laughs) Yeah. They got to keep their Tamagotchis alive. Exactly. Yeah. <laughs> Otherwise, their parents are going to be really mad. So this is why we don't let you control other planets. That's right. You got to take care of the hamster before you can get a dog. <laughs> <laughs> Next link. Next link from Anthropocene. We have a more uplifting look at our climate change situation. The simple act of spreading rock dust on farms is an overlooked but tantalizing climate solution. Hmm. Huh. 
So it is a new study that just came out estimating that this low-tech method of spreading rock dust on farms could capture almost half the carbon the UK needs to meet its climate goals while also replenishing agricultural soils. Kind of sounds like a win-win, huh? Mm? Yeah. Maybe. I mean, the question is, where do we get the rocks? Because we just had that thing about sand depletion. I mean. Yep, yep. Your mind is going exactly where mind went. But let's talk about the theory as it goes. So the simple act of sprinkling rock dust, which is an abundant byproduct of mining Ah. on farmland, could capture 45% of the carbon dioxide required to help the UK meet its 2050 net zero targets. This is a new figure from a recent study, which adds to a growing body of evidence looking at the power of minerals to draw down carbon while also replenishing agricultural soils. In fact, and this was new to me, rocks are some of our planet's greatest carbon sinks. We all talk about trees being the great replacer, but rocks capture carbon through a process called chemical weathering. And this is when atmospheric carbon dioxide gets dissolved in raindrops, which forms carbonic acid. And this carbonic acid reacts with the rock minerals and causes them to break down and weather. And during that process, carbon also changes form and it gets locked into the sediment as bicarbonate, which effectively strips it from the atmosphere and keeps it circulating in terrestrial and ocean systems for long periods of time. Hmm. And chemical weathering occurs on, obviously, a naturally slow timescale because, you know, rocks take centuries to break down. But we could speed it up by crushing them, which creates a larger surface area for weathering to occur and therefore for more minerals to absorb carbon dioxide. And this Hmm. is the idea behind rock dust. So they developed a model to test how much carbon dioxide could be captured if we applied it across UK farmlands, factoring elements like diverse soil conditions, variable weathering rates because of regional climate differences. And they looked at basalt, which is a widely available mining byproduct that contains rapidly weathering minerals. Their model also incorporated the emissions cost of mining because you got to get that from somewhere, right? And then spreading the powdered rock over fields. So even with all these variables calculated in, the potential of rock dust to offset the country's emissions were huge. By 2050, it could be removing up to 30 million tons of carbon dioxide from the atmosphere every year, which could capture about half the emissions the UK needs. The long-lasting drawdown potential of minerals means that with successive applications of rock dust to farmland, the amount of carbon dioxide could cumulatively reach up to 800 million tons by 2070. And these results emerge as the argument grows for technologies that directly remove carbon dioxide from the air. But all of the solutions we're coming up with are costly innovations like direct Mm -hmm. air capture technologies, which some accuse of distracting from accessible solutions that are already within our grasp, right? Why do the easy rock crush spread it over farmland when you could have algae farms that take so much to spin up and, you know, take up a lot of space on the Earth's surface if we were, Mm -hmm. you know, to really roll them out? But that's kind of what makes rock dust so amazing. It's low tech. It's pretty much ready to implement. It even uses food production to achieve its benefits rather than competing with crops for space, which is Mm kind of like that algae farm we're talking about. Of course, if we do want to increase the status of rock dust, listen, it it ain't sexy, right? (laughs) So we're going to need some buy-in from farmers who could be won over with the clear co-benefits that rock dust could bring to their land. Not only is it capturing carbon, but it also puts nutrients and minerals back into the soil that can reduce the need for fertilizers, which is a great Mm. cost-cutting measure. 
And of course, you know, we may need to convince the public <laughs> because reaching the required quantities of basalt to cover UK farmland specifically, yeah, we're going to need some new mines. And mines tend to be flashpoints for public opinion. Mm -hmm. So we would need to come up with an extraction that would be managed carefully to meet sustainability and community needs. But, you know, whether or not this happens in the UK, they're hoping that this could act as a blueprint for other nations to at least start exploring the benefits of rock dust on farms. Yeah, I mean, I feel like the mine issue, there's plenty of land in the U.S. that we could start mining in. Mm -hmm. There are definitely people out there who would not appreciate mm -hmm. it. But we have a long history of just sort of ignoring what they think. <laughs> and, and mining the hell out of everything. Yeah. Yeah. And if our only alternative is, well, OK, we could do that or we could put an algae farm on different people's <laughs> land and ignore what they think, you know, yeah. I think the reality is people are going to be inconvenienced no matter what we do. Yeah, so, because the world is literally burning and sinking. So, yeah. you know, sorry, it's an oh, inconvenient truth. Oh, I'm uh, oh, oh. yeah, <laughs> that was a groaner for real. All right. Next link. Next, next link. link. This article comes to us from gizmodo.com, and it's titled, This Space Rock's Weird Chemistry Suggests It Came From a Supernova. So we're staying on the theme of rocks. <laughs> <laughs> In 1996, a rock from space was found in southwestern Egypt's Great Sand Sea. The rock was odd, even by extraterrestrial standards, and a team of researchers studying the rock's chemistry now propose that it came from a supernova, the brilliant explosive collapse of a star. The rock is named Hypatia, after a 4th century Egyptian mathematician. Based on the pattern of 15 elements in a 3-gram sample of the stone, a team of researchers suspects Hypatia came from well beyond our stellar neighborhood and emerged from the gas and dusty detritus that followed a distant star's explosion. Their research is published in the journal Icarus, which just is such a... <laughs> yeah, I'm not sure why you would name your journal after a dude who wasn't known for being successful. Like, like yeah, I mean, they're daring they're too far. Big. Yeah. And yeah. then they, yeah. they did it with the name, you know, so it's. And then they're going to fall into the sea and die. <laughs> yeah. Like that's. <laughs> so I don't know. So the researchers think Hypatia came from a type 1A supernova. These supernovae occur when white dwarves, the small dense remnants of stars, consume so much material often from a neighboring star, that they explode. This distinguishes type 1A from type 2 supernovae, in which a large star's core collapses, causing a massive explosion. John Kramers, a geochemist at the University of Johannesburg in a university release, said, In a sense, we could say we have caught a supernova 1A explosion in the act, because the gas mm -hmm. atoms from the explosions were caught in the surrounding dust cloud, which eventually formed Hypatia's parent body. According to the release, the intermingling of gas atoms from the supernova and the dust in which the explosion occurred probably formed a solid rock around the early stages of our own solar system billions of years ago. On entering and impacting Earth, the parent rock of Hypatia shattered, creating the fragment found in 1996. Kramer has been studying Hypatia for nearly a decade. In 2013, argon isotopes from the rock confirmed Hypatia's extraterrestrial origins, and follow-up studies in 2015 indicated that Hypatia was neither from any known comet or meteorite, nor from our own solar system. Using a proton microprobe, the team inspected the elemental makeup of Hypatia to find the elements from the rock indicated it didn't even come from interstellar dust in our arm of the Milky Way. What? Hypatia had too much iron to come from a type 2 supernova or a red giant star. 
Thus, the researchers surmise that the most likely explanation for Hypatia's unique combination of silicon, sulfur, calcium, titanium, vanadium, chromium, manganese, iron, and nickel was a type 1a supernova. Six elements were a lot more present than what models predict for something that came from this type of supernova, though. Aluminum, phosphorus, chlorine, potassium, zinc, and copper. Kramers believes Hypatia may have inherited those elemental components from the red giant star that preceded the white dwarf that eventually exploded. Can you imagine being the guy who your whole career is, I'm an expert in this one rock? Yeah. Like, that feel, I mean, I'm glad that people like that exist, mm -hmm. but wow. Yeah. There's just a certain dedication that I don't have. I'm far too fickle. I think it helped that they gave it a really lovely name. That's true. You'd have to name it. It's like Wilson. You're on the yep. island mm -hmm. with yep. the one thing. You have to name the rock at that point. You've got a whole relationship with it after a decade. <laughs> yep. Yeah. And keep in mind that this is a three gram sample, I believe, of the stone. <gasps> oh, I missed well. that it's a part. Pebble. Yeah. It's a oh, no. Baby. So the, I think they have a larger piece, but what they're actually working with is like this extremely tiny little sliver of rock. Three grams. Wow. Why don't they just crack the whole thing open? What if it has like an alien embryo inside? I think. Uh, I, I'm I don't pretty think sure they probably x-rayed it and yeah. scanned it at this point. <laughs> yeah, but what if it's our x-rays can't. Di yeah, I mean, maybe it's lead. Open I don't know. it. <laughs> open it. <laughs> like. That's what all the, the extra elements are. The aluminum is a tiny little ship. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I kind of feel the way I do about this, the way I do about, you know, Egyptian sarcophagi. Don't do it because mm -hmm. it's just an interstellar curse, maybe. <laughs> right, right, right. Don't open that monkey's paw. Yeah. That's a bad idea. Yeah. We have enough going on. Let's just wait until we've okay, gotten over this world plot, you know? Right, right. Okay, that's fair. <laughs> All right. Well, that is all we have time for today. We're so glad you've joined us. Some of the articles we did not have time to get to today include... How Quantum Simulations Are Set to Revolutionize Lithium Batteries, A Brief History of Paris's Bone-Filled Catacombs, and Ukrainian Soldiers Uncover Fourth-Century Urns While Digging Defense Trenches. So all that and more can be found on damninteresting.com. If you like our podcast and want to support us, you can do so at patreon.com slash damninterestingweek. In the meantime, my name is Jennifer Lee Noonan. I'm Angela Epley. I'm Whisper Chen. And we hope you have a damn interesting week. Bye-bye.